I'm Letitia, host of the New Leaf podcast, created for new and working mums everywhere. Over the course of this series, I interview women from a variety of industries to share their journeys of what happened to their professional and personal identities when they had their babies and headed back to work, exploring the good, the bad, and the ugly. The motherhood space can be a scary one, but it doesn't have to be. By interviewing women in all spaces and lines of work and sharing their different experiences, I want to show you that there is no one right way and that we're all kind of winging it. My mission is to revolutionize the way we look at pregnancy, birth and motherhood, taking the judgment, pressure and expectations out and putting the confidence back in so that one day we can all say that it's my motherhood, my choice. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at New Leaf Podcast if you want to continue the conversation with the hashtag MyMotherhoodMyChoice. Before we begin, I've got something extra special for you. Click the episode details to subscribe to New Leaf Nutshell, my exclusive monthly write-up straight to your phone to break down and summarise some of the most controversial motherhood topics in a nutshell. Right now, I'm settling the sleep training debate exploring the murky baby sleep industry and detailing the pros and cons of sleep training as well as what to do when nothing is working all to support anyone who's sleep deprived right now i've referenced nearly a hundred academic articles to give you impartial and well-researched advice with none of the judgment doing all the googling so you don't have to right let's get on with my intro to our next lovely guest The inspiring author and journalist Jessica Hatchamore joins me on today's episode of New Leaf Podcast. Believe me, this is a good one. Jess reached out to me a few months ago, having heard about the podcast and wondered if we could find a way to do something together. We have a shared old connection and she said she had a book on the postnatal period after birth, which was coming out soon. Of course, there's no shortage of postnatal books, and if I'm completely honest, I rather thought it would be a standard self-care book with perhaps some new innovative bits in it, especially given her somewhat intriguing background as a journalist reporting on sub-Saharan Africa. But I wasn't sure how much more could be said on this crucial period in our lives, I suppose because I simply hadn't given it enough thought. The mental side, yes physical side, no. We had a quick call, which turned into an hour's call, and I thought, wow, okay, yes, this is the woman for the podcast. Then I was fortunate enough to be sent an early copy of the book before we got going and recording, which I devoured, and my mind was absolutely blown. I consider myself a bit of a birth nerd. It's sort of a giant part of my job, listening to women's stories and understanding them, and I can't get enough of them. It started when I was pregnant, and it hasn't really stopped. It is a true addiction that my subconscious managed to spin into a job. Birth stories are the best and never boring, always full of drama, emotion, different funny characters. There's always at least one. And generally, they have some sort of plot twist with an incredible and joyous ending. And because they're so personal, people tell them so well. There's never a badly told birth story. However, 
Jess's book really made me understand that there is another birth story, the afterbirth story, which can be just as twisting, just as physically dramatic, and just as emotional for the mother. And yet so often it is not told. Birth injury consequences are so often written off as normal, with a deathly silence of proper research around their recovery. At six-week checks, stitches are often not looked at, compounding a sense of shame, with incontinence dismissed without proper support, and women having to advocate for themselves, often in a situation that they have never experienced in their whole life. It can affect their relationships, their feelings towards their child, their ability to get back to work, their mental and physical health, and even their journey towards old age. Jess's book navigates the journey from pregnancy to after birth, quoting the absolutely fascinating bits of research to really challenge the current ways in which we do birth and the postnatal period. We talk about this in lots of areas in the episode. There is so far an enormous and untapped power waiting to be unleashed of prenatal information and education to pregnant women around the physical process of birth, what can happen, and the postnatal consequences. I actually talked about this with a guest in my second ever episode of New Leaf back in series one, saying that information shouldn't equal fear. And Jess's book is essentially this very message, but in spades. She bravely discusses womankind and society's need to drag birth and its physiology away from being the dark secret that mothers wink-wink, nudge-nudge to each other while eye-rolling at the blissfully naive pregnant friend, towards an informed and confident pregnant woman who doesn't have to say, why didn't anyone tell me following their birth experience? I could not agree more. It shouldn't be this way, and knowledge is power. As a C-section mother myself, I had other physical consequences of birth, but pelvic floor issues weren't one of them. I dealt with the abdominal separation, the pain of major surgery, and the sometimes longer recovery period that comes with a C-section. But I simply hadn't lived through how debilitating vaginal birth injuries can be, and my naivety is, in part, a consequence of the silence that still surrounds these. Jess hilariously refers to the book as an ode to the pelvic floor, which in some ways it is, but actually it's so, so much more than that. It walks you through the whole pre, during and afterbirth process with humour, factual information and amazing stories from women just like you and me in an inclusive and non-judgmental way. This is no easy feat, by the way. Jess's book opened my eyes to what millions of women go through as part of the birthing process and places it in a wider context of how better information can make for better births, better birth outcomes and better long-term health outcomes for women. Introducing the amazing Jessica Hatchamore. Welcome, Jess. Hi, Letitia. Thank you. (laughs) You are very welcome. I am particularly excited about this episode. So I actually had to get a lot of my enthusiasm out of the way before we started recording, which Jess will attest to. 
but I'm just so pleased to have you on. So tell me, where are you in the world right now and what can you see in front of you? So I'm sitting in my little office, which is at the end of our uh, cottage in North Wales, where we live. And in front of me, I've got some bookshelves. On the shelves, excitingly, like 20 copies of my new book, which arrived this morning. So I first got my hands on it last week and I'm still in that stage where I'm stroking it occasionally. And out of the window is the Dee Valley. There's our little garden. And then beyond that, the very beautiful steep side D Valley with the River Deep and running below it. Oh, that's lovely. And it's North Wales, right? That's right. Yeah, about half an hour from the English-Welsh border. Okay. And I understand that North Wales hasn't been your home for that long. That's right. So I grew up on the other side of the border in Shropshire, which is about 45 minutes away from here, which is where my parents still are near Shrewsbury. And then I was at university in Oxford, lived in London after that, and then left and moved to Nairobi in Kenya. And I was in East Africa for about five years where I met my husband. And then we joked that I dragged him back to North Wales. It was originally our retirement plan to live in the mountains. And then um, (laughs) we we brought it forwards. Quite a lot. Yes. (laughs) But we figured that Manchester is a brilliant airport and there are some pretty good hills within an hour's distance of it. And so we found literally the steepest hills and found this lovely town and moved to try it out and bought a house subsequently and stayed ever since. So tell me about your immediate family unit. Who is in it? So my husband is Phil, Philip, and as I said, we actually met in Somalia, in Mogadishu, on an assignment. He's a photojournalist and documentary photographer. And we then moved back to this country in 2016. And then in 2017, our first child was born, Finley, who is now just over three and a half. And then our second child, Hugo, was born in August last year, and he is now seven months Seven months. Okay, so two under four. It's still pretty entertaining. Yeah, it's uh, it's busy, and uh, yeah, I think the three-year-old is the more challenging one at the moment. He's just so full of life. Oh my goodness! Don't tell me that. <laughs> Don't tell me that because I've got a two-year-old, and I was expecting it to get easier. No, he's delightful. He's absolutely gorgeous, but at the same time, just so energetic. I just don't even understand where they get their energy from. Describe to me what your life was like pre-babies. My life was, it was all geared to work. I was a cliche, I think at about nine or something years old, I wrote in a diary that I want to be a writer one day. And it's what I've always wanted to do. I've always loved books and stories. And when I was living in London, it was still what I wanted to do, but it's very hard to make a living and pay rent in London whilst starting out as a writer and I worked in PR initially and then I found myself at the Evening Standard working on the Londoner's Diary which is like a slightly highbrow gossip pages um, and I'd go to <laughs> I'd go to celebrity parties and my job was basically to chat up celebrities and find out gossip and I never knew who anyone was. So I spent half the time on the phone to my sister and my mum, like, okay, who's that? Is he a footballer? Like, I once interviewed Jared Leto and I thought he was Harry Potter. I was really, really bad at it. And I knew this wasn't like my calling, but I knew I was getting closer. And I eventually, I signed up to run a marathon in northern Kenya on a nature reserve, like that's got lions and elephants and things and helicopters have to chase off the big game so they don't um, eat the participants. And um, I (laughs) I thought this would make for a good story to write about. I did that. I ran this marathon and wrote about it for, I think, the Evening Standard, actually, for their travel pages or for something. And then while I was there, I actually found a really good story. And I came back and got that commissioned from the Telegraph magazine. 
And they sent me out and I had a photographer who was sent to work with me. And he's actually now one of our best friends. But he was the first person who said, listen, you're clearly not very good at celebrities in London, but you're really really good in Africa. Like You should come and move to Nairobi and report on this beat instead. And so I, I literally knew nothing, but I did it. I just went back to London, packed up my flat and moved to Nairobi. What was the story? It was an initiative by the Nature Conservancy who are a conservation charity, and they invited a group of about half a dozen very influential Chinese businessmen, largely private sector businessmen, exceedingly wealthy individuals, and they invited them over on the ultimate safari in Kenya. But as part of that safari, they also showed them up front, up close, the effects of China's appetite for elephant ivory and rhino horn. So they saw them darting elephants and cutting their tusks, darting rhino and cutting their horns off, which when you witness that, there's a high risk that the rhino is going to die during the procedure. And they learned loads about the conservation aspects and what everyone's doing on the ground to try and save them. And rhino nowadays, they need armed guards around them just to keep them alive um, because the, the horns were so much. And so these individuals and their families basically went home, huge advocates for elephants and rhino conservation and yeah it was a really successful trip and initiative and I basically embedded with them so I was flying around in helicopters and the wine they brought was unbelievable we stayed at a lodge and they left as a gift for the lodge owner a bottle of wine and he looked it up on the internet after they left and it was worth about five thousand dollars and they brought cases of this stuff it was unbelievable on a private jet So I basically wrote about this really glitzy safari, but that had a very serious angle for the Telegraph magazine. How the other half live, that's just extraordinary. But brilliant that people with so much power, aka money, are then able to see it all up close and personal and firsthand. Exactly, yeah. So what year was that in that you went out? That I think was 2011. Okay, 10 years ago. So where did your journey go from there in terms of getting to know Africa? And how did you end up in Mogadishu? What was that journey like? I look back and I think I was so naive the whole time or initially at the beginning because I was really hungry to work, to start reporting on issues. Like I'm not proud to say it, but I think back at the beginning, the biggest issues are sort of conflict and crisis. So you you want to feel that you're exposed to them. And so I think it was that sort of thing that took me to Mogadishu within a few months of arriving in Nairobi because I was hungry for experience. And I think, yeah, I sometimes feel quite self-critical about being, yeah, just naive. But at the same time, when I look at the reporting I did, even from the beginning, like that first ever trip to Mogadishu, I was interviewing the female runners who were hoping to take part in the Olympics that year. And it's really difficult. They have absolutely no funding. These runners have been training under Al-Shabaab, so they've been concealing themselves to cross the front lines in a war in order to get to the stadium to do a bit of running. And they wouldn't be able to wear sports kit as girls because it's not allowed. And they were really brave women. And so even from the beginning, I was seeking out women's issues, I suppose. And also... I've always looked for underreported stories. And in a way, that's been quite hard because it's harder to sell a little obscure story about some runners that no one's heard of than it is maybe the more obvious stories. So then my husband now, the guy I just met, who's a photographer, we then back to back were on multiple trips. We went from Mogadishu to Guinea-Bissau and then we were in Senegal. Then we were in DRC in Congo covering a civil war there. And the whole time I was aware of the fact that I was new to this all and there's just so much to understand. 
I, I did a story in Congo about, it was really one of the most upsetting stories I've ever done, actually, about the female perpetrated sexual violence, all in the context of a civil war where sexual violence and rape is not a sort of sexual thing. It's a sort of weapon of war in inverted commas. And female perpetrators of rape essentially was uh, just so upsetting because they'd largely been victims of sexual violence themselves. They'd then been recruited to armed groups and then they were meeting out the, the same punishment I suppose on other women and that story probably stayed with me more than any but it also I wasn't afraid to try and tackle these really difficult complex issues and follow my instincts when I felt that there was something that needed looking into because I think that story no one in the aid industry liked talking about it it went against all their narratives of women as victims especially in DRC where rape is such a huge issue and such a huge narrative for the aid sector and the response so I had to fight quite hard to get people to talk to me about that but it taught me a lot of things it taught me how to be brave and unflinching and to take criticism. And these are all things that I've used now writing about women's health in the UK and it's such a different book. But yeah, there's a crossover. Yeah, and there is. And actually, I'm going to come on to that. But I think what's popping into my head is what did your family think of what you were doing or did your friends comment? Because to go from London sipping Prosecco (laughs) at parties and interviewing celebrities and then just being like yeah bye I'm gonna go to Africa now I'll see you all later (laughs) and you must have been how old then were you in your 20s I was in my late 20s yeah that's a big deal and also in war zones dealing with sexual violence as in reporting on sexual violence are you a bit of an adrenaline junkie I don't know I mean to a degree yes in that I I don't deal very well with constants. I need change. And as an example, after my first baby was born, I couldn't go running. I couldn't do I couldn't do anything really. I guess that's how yeah. I felt. And that is why I started jumping in the river that runs below our house. It was winter. I jump in for ten seconds, twenty seconds, and I get out again. And it was freezing, but it gave me a jolt. But I am also perfectly happy living in North Wales in a cosy cottage. And the extent of my requirement for adrenaline is needing to do something like go for a run or jump in the river. I think I need new experiences. And so I I think when I first moved from London to Nairobi, I felt actually relief. My parents didn't, I don't think, fully understand it. My dad did because he'd spent some time in Zambia when he was in his 20s and has got a bit of a love affair with sub-Saharan Africa. My mum didn't really get it at all and found it quite upsetting. And not long after university, I actually spent four months cycling across sub-Saharan Africa, 5,000 miles, visiting conservation projects with two university friends to raise money for a charity called Tusk Trust, which is a conservation charity. And that upset my mum too, because she was quite worried because we didn't have any support. We were carrying all our water and crossing deserts and things. And I probably wasn't able to explain to myself exactly why I was doing it. But at the time, that was difficult for my mum to swallow. So you were bitten by the bug long before then. It wasn't just, okay, I'm randomly going to a continent I've never been to before. That's true. Yes. And I had no idea what to expect. And I, I loved it. Yeah. What was the scariest situation you were ever in when you were out in Africa? 
where there is gunfire around I would always find it unsettling obviously but probably the most scary I suppose was during a rebellion in eastern Congo and reports started coming in of multiple rapes in a small town outside of the capital. The rebels had just taken over the capital city and driven out the government army. So I found a woman called Mama Joelle and she ran an unofficial network of women who are mothers and grandmothers and what they would do is find, identify victims of sexual violence and then they would just offer them support and help. There was no pressure on these women to try and seek justice, which on the whole doesn't really exist anyway. But she was so creative. She'd pretend to be a nurse or pretend to be there for a completely spurious reason. And then she'd quietly ask the woman once she'd managed to get everyone else out of the room whether she was okay and what had happened because women were very scared to to talk about it and Mama Joelle took me across the front line to this little town where the government army had stormed through and we were crossing essentially the line between the government and rebel army and we were pulled off the road by armed men and Mama Joelle didn't look too panicked but everyone in our group looked pretty ruffled and I had absolutely no idea where we were being pulled off to. Anyway it turns out that the militia that had stopped us and taken us off the road actually wanted some free PR from me rather than wanting to take us but kidnapping Congo is quite common so that was probably the, the scariest moment but in the end we got to the town and I think about 150 women had been raped in the course of a, a long weekend and oh I, yeah, it was absolutely horrific and I broke that story in Time magazine and it's, it was a really critical point in in that conflict and for the international community and uh, yeah that was probably the moment that jumps out at me most as being the most significant. I mean anything could have happened you're just completely at the mercy of whoever pulls you over. And I think it's the lawlessness that can be quite terrifying. And I just knows this already. I used to work for Save the Children, but we all had to do mandatory training. I can't even remember what it's called now, but we didn't go anywhere. They give you a sort of introduction to it on a computer. And it's like playing this really weird game. So you do multiple choice and they're like, your Jeep gets fired at by a bazooka. What is the range of a bazooka versus machine gun fire? <laughs> I'm serious. I'm deadly serious. And you have to mix and match what you think the bazooka range is versus like a handgun or something else. And I remember doing this just being like, oh my God, this is just... It sounds like a driving uh, anyway. theory test for us. Yeah, honestly, that's exactly what it was like. Yeah, for us, it was always a really careful balance between actually managing to do some reporting versus not incurring unnecessary risk because you then put other people in danger. Because, yes, you don't want to get kidnapped for yourself, but you also don't want to get kidnapped because it then means that you're putting a ton of other people in danger or taking up a load of resources that could be much better spent mm. elsewhere. And to be honest, I for that reason, amongst others, I was on the cautious side, I'd say. I love that, on the cautious side. But meanwhile, <laughs> this is what I'm up to. <laughs> I love it. You spent coming up to six years in Africa. Where did your journey take you next? My husband and I were together at this point, but still working either together or in similar places. And our work was getting increasingly challenging from a security point of view as well. And we were going home to Nairobi, but Nairobi was also getting increasingly challenging from a security point of view. And we were there as freelancers. We lived on a little compound that had no security. There was no wall or gate, but the city was in 
increasingly growing around us and becoming more and more insecure. And frequently I'd hear gunshots at night from my bed and there were a few incidents where friends of a friend were shot and killed by armed robbers and these sorts of things were happening more and more frequently and I just got a bit on edge. I think we both did and we both felt that it was either time to settle and commit to Kenya and say, okay, we're going to do this properly or we need to go somewhere else. And I think I just needed for my sanity some time in a safe place where I wasn't constantly worrying. And so then we decided to move to Berlin because it's a similarly excellent hub for a really interesting region. It's a real melting pot of cultures and people. It's cheap, which is essential for freelancers. And I speak German, so that helps too. And so we had a great year, but for various reasons, like it's really hard to find a flat in Berlin. And I knew that I wanted to have children. My husband actually didn't, but he knew that we were going to at some point. <laughs> um, and so I think my mind was half on that. And because we were finding it hard to, to settle in Berlin, I wanted to put down some roots and nest. And we got married that year back in the UK. But And so, yeah, we, and we kept spending our holidays in Wales, climbing mountains. And my husband's always loved the hills and has contemplated living in the Alps before when he was younger. So yeah, Wales was our retirement plan. And then we thought, well, hang on, if we both can essentially work anywhere, as long as we can access internet and an airport, then maybe we can do Wales now. And my parents are close to here, which I knew would be really helpful with children. And so we came back here and rented a little sort of bungalow on a farm. And then a year later, I had Finn. And then we bought a house shortly after that. And it was was a kind of falling down cottage perched on a really steep hill and it took so much work and money and has drained so much from us but it's also outstandingly beautiful where it is but that meant that we bought it when Finn was three months old and for various reasons my husband spent that first year of Finn's life like desperately working 12 hour days at the house to try and get us into the house while I did the charcoal. Wow, and so much to unpick there. But it's interesting because, of course, the pandemic has meant that I think lots of people have had to work from anywhere. And as long as they've got internet, they're sorted. So in some ways, that must have been quite good practice for COVID, only because you must have been very used to doing things remotely, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And also, we've got space here, which feels such a luxury like literally out we have quite a small garden but our garden backs onto a mountain which has there are no houses at all behind us and it's open access land Finn is free to basically go wherever he likes and we've got chickens at the back and so that that space has felt like such a luxury in the last year or so so you got pregnant then and firstly you said your husband didn't want kids was there a final cajoling moment where you were like this is happening or that was that a condition of getting married it was a condition set really early on, as in before we had the marriage conversation, he knew that I really wanted children and it wasn't something I was going to compromise on. So it was like, you either be with me and have children or we're going to not be together. And he was he's always been very committed to me and that commitment's never wavered. That has been amazing. And I think there were a few cajoling moments where I was like, this is on, right? This is on. And then I was lucky in that I got pregnant pretty quickly and then it was on. There's not much going back from there. So. <laughs> yeah. And how did you find your pregnancy? 
really uncomplicated, actually. There's definitely a time towards the end when you're like, what is my body doing? And I write about this in the book when I just I disconnected from my body towards the end because I just thought the whole thing was so extraordinary. And because obviously being in the middle of nowhere, or at least, well, not, I don't want to say middle of nowhere, being rural, obviously the midwifery care must be quite different compared to, let's say, central London or something. So how did you find that bit? How was your contact with hospital, etc.? Yeah, it's very different. And I had the same midwife throughout for both pregnancies, apart from the birth itself. I know her really well now. She knows me. And that is a huge benefit of being somewhere rural, I think, unless you get a terrible midwife who you don't get on with. But I really got on with my and I've had her throughout. She'd give me a ring and just pop up to the house or she'd often come and see me at home rather than take me into the GP surgery. And after my second birth, which she didn't attend, but which was the more difficult for various reasons. She was incredibly supportive, even though she hadn't really been involved in the birth. So yeah, the midwifery care in rural areas is, I think, obviously very different. The drawback is you don't have loads of amazing hospitals within five miles, 10 miles, but I think you get a more personalised service during Mm. the actual pregnancy itself. So pregnancy seems like it went quite well and you just kept calm and carried on. And I think it's a double-edged saw that really because I think if you have a very smooth pregnancy I've heard this from other people that it can be quite tricky to then prepare you for what happens afterwards and of course there must be this amazing genesis story to how the book after birth happened from pregnancy to this point so just take me through that because to then dedicate however much of your time to writing this incredible book how on earth did that happen how did you get to this stage yes I think fundamentally I was just really shocked by the fact that I like also I've I've got loads of friends who've had babies but for some reason I was I felt really ill-prepared and I couldn't quite work out why I honestly think that everybody feels ill-prepared yeah okay everybody feels ill-prepared so then it's okay it's either the world's best kept secret and it's going to remain that way or we as a society can do something better to prepare women and to make that transition easier. I still don't know. I think there is a movement at the moment to prepare people better for the postnatal period. I, I feel like I'm a small part of that, but there is that movement. The question is, will it actually result in women having an easier postnatal experience or are we just destined to not prepare for it? I don't know. Time will tell. Personally, I felt extremely ill-prepared and wished that I had known a little bit more about the basics, about other women's experiences. So my journey started, I I actually had a really good birth, or at least described it afterwards with the word, I used the word enjoyment. Like I said, I actually quite enjoyed it, which I think is fairly rare. I don't know. So I feel grateful for that. It went on for a long time, but it was, in a way, it was quite fun. I had a lot of time, but equally not too much time that we were all getting worried. And this was in a midwifery centre in a hospital. And the midwife was great. They were funny too. And my husband was great. He's very practical and not at all squeamish. He was very supportive and an ideal birth partner, I suppose, and kept me well hydrated and fed, poking flapjack into my mouth when I was in between contractions to keep my energy levels up. And, and then afterwards, I, I thought I'd had a really good pregnancy. I'm relatively fit. I I just thought that, I don't know, that would be that. I'd gone over the hill and it was now downhill, but actually it felt like the opposite. It felt like birth was actually not 
that awful. And then afterwards, I was like, whoa, okay, this body that I've been getting used to ever since it changed during puberty is now totally different. And like my core muscles had, I think, I don't know what, where they'd gone or what they'd done, but I think it was more traction injuries to my nerves because I, my baby was quite big. He was nine, five. Um, That's big for that really first big. baby. Because he snuck out slowly. He's just really effectively stretched everything. And so then it took a long time to get back to not basically leaking or doing a mini wee whenever I did anything really, like hopped or sneezed or laughed. It took ages to get back to running and took ages to understand all of the weird ambivalences of motherhood. Like this this fact, basically, that you spend half your time wanting to be very far away from your baby and half your time never, ever wanting to leave it. And like I was just really flawed and ill-prepared by so many of these ambivalences and contradictions and challenges. You were saying hope <laughs> either we're going to be destined for this just to go on and on or this movement is actually going to gain some traction and we're going to get somewhere. And I'm feeling positive. I think it's going to get somewhere. I'm bloody all over it. You're all over it. I think enough people are starting to talk about this that yeah. I think it is definitely going somewhere. Yeah. And there's a bit that really stuck out to me very late last night where it's towards the beginning of the book, actually. I was trying to think of the relevant things I wanted to pick out and to talk to you about on the recording. And it was saying that they tried sitting down with women and saying, this is what the risks are of a vaginal birth. This is what the risks are of a C-section. This is what we think might happen with you because of your pelvic shape or the size of the baby Mm. or whatever. And just informing them of your baby looks quite big and you look quite small or this looks like it could go absolutely fine or whatever. And just having that knowledge at the beginning and just informing women of the risks up front rather than just glossing over it in an attempt to not freak people out and in the passage you say they were really concerned that the rates of c-section were going to fly up because people would be so freaked out by what they'd said in terms of the risks of vaginal births etc and that it didn't make any difference yeah and I think you talk about it so eloquently it's just that idea of just being told rather than being infantilized from the beginning and just, oh, it'll all be fine. Your body's perfectly designed. I'm like, yes, it is. But also all the little nuances, exactly as you say in the book, like what if the baby's hand is up or the shoulder gets stuck? or the Mm. perfect rotations of the baby don't happen in the way that they normally should or for whatever reason you get stressed halfway through a labor all these things can really affect the outcome frankly of your pelvic floor but also your interpretation of your experience of that birth Mm. and I just had such a light bulb moment where I was like why don't they do that why don't they do that yeah exactly yes there's this um, amazing guy in the US who's essentially doing the really leading pelvic modelling work. But it was the UK study where they informed ah, women of all the risks of the trial, all the risks of vaginal birth and women still said that it didn't affect the C-section rate. That's um, so interesting. Yeah. So interesting. They basically said that, yeah, people don't, you don't want to have a C-section unnecessarily on the whole. And if women do, then they've got very personal reasons for wanting that. And then in Michigan, there's this work to essentially model women's pelvises based on scans, model babies' heads. And they they estimate that I think 80% of women should be able to give birth naturally without a problem. 10 or 20% are likely to have a problem because of physiological reasons. 
So what that's working towards is being able to identify those 10 or 20% right at the beginning so they don't have to go through it. And then with time, be able to come up with a, a sort of percentage or risk factor for problems so that it just removes some of the guessing and the sort of fingers crossed aspect of it all. Two out of 10 women having physiological limitations to giving birth vaginally is a big deal. That is not like all 1% or half a percent or whatever. And I think it's just not talked about openly enough. So all the women who are listening who had difficult births or had third and fourth degree tears, I just think there's so much sense of failure and blame that goes into it because there's such a kind of whitewashing of birth and the birth experience. And it's like, oh, you did something wrong or you had an epidural, therefore it slowed everything down. And that's why it all went wrong. When actually sometimes there are occasions where there's literally nothing that the woman could have done. Like it was never really going to go smoothly. And I think that's such an important point. Yeah. Absolutely. And this, I think that's what I'm trying to say is really that the idea of like natural birth and the positive birth movement, like that's not at odds with women being better informed of risks and eventualities. I think those two things, better information can go hand in hand with this belief that our bodies are well designed for this process and a degree of confidence in, in what we're going into. I've talked about this before on various posts on Instagram and also plenty of times to people informally where I think this positive birth movement is so brilliant and it's so fantastic and it is centered around information and empowering women etc but language is really powerful it's really powerful and ironically that's the premise of hypnobirthing right that language is very powerful and what we say on the outside really affects our inside and if you're saying to people my body was perfectly designed to have this baby I'm now going to breathe baby out etc for some women that's not going to work for some women that's not going to work and it makes them feel like they've failed yes it makes them feel like they failed but it also I think as well it's increases the chance that there's going to be a tipping point during their birth when they're like oh god my body's not perfectly designed for this because you go into it with this false expectation or ideological expectation but the sort of perfect scenario and any deviation from that perfect scenario is more likely to then unhinge you or knock you do you see what I mean whereas perhaps I don't know if you go in with a more realistic expectation then maybe you're going to be slightly more resilient to any deviations from the norm or deviations from what you expect exactly and if you read a bit in the book as well where it's talking about breastfeeding and I I write a big article every month the nutshell which is like a newsletter if you just swipe up in the episode details you can click to subscribe but essentially the first one I do is all about breast and bottle feeding and you quote the stats much better than me but it was something like seven percent of women simply don't have enough for whatever reason they don't have enough glandular tissue Mm. to be able to breastfeed effectively and again seven percent is not nothing that's not tiny that's actually quite big and what I really like about Jess's book is that she puts little anecdotes like women who are quoting their own experiences etc and this one woman who just it just wasn't happening and her baby was losing weight and it's dangerous for the baby and it's soul destroying for the mother to then have to do her own research to figure out oh actually (laughs) maybe this just isn't working for me yeah, exactly. And in that case, it was because uh, really sadly as well, she was had obesity issues as a child, and that had affected the formation of her glandular tissue. And she went on this journey of discovery and but had to learn it. She had to discover it herself rather than while well, the professionals were kind of giving her the opposite advice. 
And I think it's it's so well intentioned. And I, I also talk about this in the article as well. Like you've got this perfect storm of really low breastfeeding rates in the Western world and NHS and other organisations having targets and really trying to encourage it. And of course, breast milk, it is no two ways about it. Of course, it is best for your baby nutritionally chemically compositionally all the rest of it but just sometimes it just doesn't work which I think can just be absolutely devastating if it goes wrong yeah completely and it's just it just feels so personal it's like for a start whenever you're attempting to do it you've got like one boob hanging out at a minimum (laughs) (laughs) it's just like I write in the book about it's just it feels awful when I, I, I could never persuade my first child to feed he was really big so it wasn't an issue but I think my milk came out very quickly and it would choke him so I spent a lot of time trying to get him to latch on but it's just it's a really humiliating defeat when your own baby's like rejecting you and you're sitting there with your tits out it's rubbish yeah and it's hurting or whatever yeah. in the beginning it's not just oh my baby won't suck on my boob it's my boob is in agony yeah. I've got cracks like I'm bleeding everywhere like... and it stinks like stale milk <laughs> everywhere yeah, yeah. so you described birth and the post-birth period as just being a huge shock. So the question that I usually ask is, how did you feel about maternity leave? Was it something that you enjoyed or didn't enjoy? I suppose I enjoyed it. I enjoyed parts of it a lot. Like I actually had a relatively straightforward baby and like he was always big and I never really worried about him. It was my issues, I think, just not engaging with anyone other than a small baby for large stretches of time and everything, you know it, everyone who's listening knows it. And yeah, I did enjoy maternity leave the first time around, but I also found it really challenging. And I think that was in part because my husband was out of the house for long days and and I love my work. So I missed it. I wanted to be working I think I also felt like I wanted to be writing or recording somehow the experiences I was having but I didn't really have much energy or time to do so I felt like I'd read memoirs written by women while they were on maternity leave but it was also like torture to me because I was like how is she doing this and I just felt artistically mute and I just sat there not doing anything and then the second maternity leave I'm technically still on it part-time I'm now back at work three days a week but after two months I had to go back to enough to edit the book and so I knew that there was there was an end in sight whereas the first time around I didn't really feel like that either um, and I envied people who had a set year off work and then at the end of that they knew that they'd get back to their job and their real life and or I suppose not their real life return to whatever it is they do other than being a mum and I didn't know what the end was or what the future would look like because as a as a freelance journalist I just I'm only as good as my last story and yeah I didn't know what would be next which leads us on to the book was this something that you always knew that you were going to do that you were going to write a book about postnatal life no it absolutely wasn't I had no idea I thought I wouldn't write about motherhood because I felt that there was so many great writers doing it I didn't think I could add anything and then it was a about two, three months in, and I had a conversation with my literary agent, and I thought I wanted to write an essay, and I wanted his opinion. And this essay was going to be about new motherhood, becoming a mother, and mental health, really, and an exercise, and the fact that I'd used exercise and running as a tool for balancing my mind and processing things. And it was like my form of meditation. 
And then after I had a baby, I needed it more than ever, the ability to just put my trainers on and go for a little run and come back feeling really refreshed. And for the first time in my life, I couldn't do it. And that's because of my body. And I ended up jumping in the river. My baby was about five weeks old and I had a kind of argument with my husband, something really minor that just turned into me like sobbing and losing my shit <laughs> and um, <laughs> just get, and he was like he treated it like medicine he was like I think I think you like just get your bikini get your swimming costume get a towel we're going to the river I think you need to swim because I'd lived in Hampstead Heath when I was in London and I used to swim in the ladies pond every morning and so he knew that and I'd swum in the river before like since we'd lived here it wasn't entirely new but he was like yeah get your trainers on we're going to the river and he sat on the bank with the baby and basically made me jump in the river and it was like late October it was really cold or maybe early November and I initially felt slightly reluctant and humiliated by this but then afterwards I was like okay I feel amazing that was really good for me thank you very much because it just gave me that chance to be myself and not to feel just a a mum and so that phrase is really bad because being mother is enormous and something we should all be incredibly proud of and yet I needed to feel something else at that time and jumping in the river gave me that and so I wanted to write an essay about all of these things that would have put it much better than I just explained it but my agent Ed his wife had had a couple of really challenging births and recoveries and he was like I think this is a huge issue. I think the pelvic floor is a massive issue. And he became this like unexpected advocate for a memoir about the pelvic floor, basically, in a book about all things pelvic floor. And I was like, okay, this could work. Amazing. The pelvic floor was something I cared about, but I'm also quite British. So it was also like, okay, I think I can get my head around the fact that my first book is going to be about incontinence, essentially. I wrote a proposal while I had a small baby on maternity leave, like in the evenings and things. And when he napped and then the book world publishing moves incredibly slowly so that sort of went around a few publishers there was positive feedback but actually a few other books had been commissioned so it took a while to find the right publisher eventually profile books who's my publisher came back and it was actually their title and their idea after birth two words And I could see from the beginning that it could be a really positive and empowering and helpful tool for women. As soon as I found that actually all these things are quite common or a lot of women go through them, especially the mental side of it and how you you feel and deal with having a newborn baby and also how it affects your relationship with your partner and all that stuff. I felt like if I could distill all of these things into one book about the postnatal period, it could be both entertaining but also really constructive and informative. And yeah, my publisher have been brilliant. Ed continues to advocate to champion the pelvic floor. And here we are. You've got one of the first copies. Okay, I feel very privileged. So this obviously happened then after the second baby, is that right? Oh, blimey, yes. At the end of 2019, Profile basically said, yes, we'd like to publish this book. I think it was like weeks later, days later, it was very soon afterwards that I missed a period and discovered I was pregnant. And then the pandemic happened. So basically, I wrote it during the pandemic whilst pregnant. And I knew that the deadline for the book was the end of August, I think. But then due date became the end of August. So then the book's due date had to come forwards by a couple of weeks to give us a bit of breathing time. (laughs) But yeah, I wrote the book and grew a baby simultaneously. 
I was at a conference for third and fourth degree tears and it was all really hardcore and there were certainly a few a few points where my brain started to go a bit crazy, imagining the things that could befall me in my body. It all became a bit too like method acting, and my publisher was so cool about it. I suppose I was a bit nervous about telling them, and they were incredible. They never doubted my ability to pull it all off, and they made sure that I was taking enough time off to be with the baby after he was born, and from the beginning, they were absolutely outstanding about it all. Do you think this has ch- permanently changed the trajectory of your writing and what you will write about in the future? Yeah, it's really interesting. I really hope people read it. What I've done with it is try to combine three different genres, essentially, other people's experiences, reporting with memoir and like, evidence-based advice. Because I, I think those three things are all independent. Like We read them all in on their own like we read memoir we read dry advice books that are just manuals and handbooks and we read about other women's experiences so I just hope that it does work and I suspect like I love reporting I love interviewing people I love finding out what makes them tick and then I love constructing their like narratives that that represent their story in the best possible way or the truest way and the most compelling way I don't want to lose my reporting if that makes sense and that's one of the things I've really missed during the pandemic is um, actually being able to spend time with people in person like normally when I interview people I really get to know them and this time I've got to know people pretty well and I suppose that's testament to the people I've been interviewing is that their personalities and characters are really strong and we've never struggled to connect even though it's on zoom or whatever but I have missed going out and meeting people I don't know and trying to understand them. And you were saying, oh, I hope I've managed to balance the like memoir versus dry handbook manual and then also women's stories. And I can assess you absolutely do that. But not only do you do that, you also make it really funny. And I think that's something that really helps because, again, if you've just been completely embroiled in mum life all day and then you're about to pick up a book that is doing more of mum life, you want it to be easy reading as well and I just couldn't put it down so anybody who's listening put a reminder in your diary for when it comes out because I do think that this will spark so many conversations between people and I'm already thinking about who I can lend it to. Well, that's what uh, I wanted yeah. as well. I wanted it to be shared. Like, I love the idea of someone giving it to their sister. And there's also a section in the back, which is written for partners, because, yeah, by helping them, we also help ourselves. Because if they know what to expect and how to help us a bit better, then they can be that support that we need. Exactly. Do you feel like there's a particular priority that needs to be addressed from a society point of view or government view when it comes to the postnatal period? Yes, there needs to be better government subsidy for childcare in this country. And then the other thing is better postnatal mental and physical care. And I feel very strongly that the two need also to be linked up better. Like at the moment, your sort of postnatal six-week check with a doctor, mine was really, it was useless, to be honest. But the kind of questions she was asking, so do you think you've got any postnatal depression? Um, and and that was like an add-on and it needs more time there needs to be budgets set aside which budgets that don't exist for for postnatal healthcare and to give women the space to actually say really how they are because if you have a maximum 10 minute appointment 
with a nurse or GP, which is what a standard appointment is, they're going to have to be quite an exceptional person to discover in that 10 minutes really what's going on with you six weeks after you've had a baby, or they've got to have had a prior relationship with you. And of course, there are going to be some women who've really thought about it and prepared for themselves for what they do need. But there's a woman in my book who had a third degree tear, which is a tear into the anus during her first birth but it was undiagnosed and she's a GP and she did go to a doctor and say listen I'm doing fanny farts something's going on here but she recognizes that even for her that was hard to do really hard Mm. to do and she's a doctor and she has no problems talking about these things but she was saying like god anyone else like that's not information that you're readily going to give to a doctor so because my first birth was really uncomplicated. I figured that my pelvic floor was really nicely stretched to allow safe passage for a second baby. We decided to have the second at home. And my contractions, I don't know whether it's that they were so strong. They think it is. But basically, it was all over really quickly. And the midwives arrived really late as well. They didn't come when they should have done. And it wasn't my normal midwife. So I had a different midwife who I'd never met before. She didn't bother to come when she should have done. She thought I'd take ages. And then they ended up like running in as I was about to start pushing. And um, oh my God. And then they took the baby's uh, heart rate and found he was really struggling. So then they called an ambulance, but the ambulance took ages. By the time he came out very soon after the midwives arrived and didn't breathe and could have died on the bedroom floor, they were resuscitating him. It was really horrific. <laughs> this is all in the afterword in the book. And basically, because I, I spent a lot of time in the book writing about traumatic births, never having experienced one myself. And then I experienced one. And but we had this really excruciating 10 minute wait with the midwives on the floor, like cursing under their breath because they hadn't managed to unpack, desperately trying to resuscitate the baby with my husband, like holding me, having just given birth. And then the ambulance arrived and they took him off to hospital. And he just, he is fine. There was nothing wrong with him, essentially, other than the fact that he didn't establish breathing well at birth. And no one had ever read the notes. And they, so I just kept having to tell the whole story from the beginning, the whole story from the beginning. And I was really, I was traumatized by it, like immediately after the birth was. And so having written the book and researched traumatic birth and stuff, I knew that one of the two things that worked was EMDR, which is a trauma therapy that involves, when you have a memory that gets stuck in the kind of juvenile emotional part of your brain, and it's not allowed to process through the logical side of your brain and that's basically a traumatic memory and I just felt let down by the care that I was getting because it felt like they didn't care and then when I would tell them what happened their responses were often not appropriate like I don't know either telling me oh my baby was born really prematurely at home and I'm absolutely fine now so don't worry and like of course okay that's nice that you've told me that but equally it's not helping me right now Mm -hmm. someone else told me that oh there's no like you're not going to get any support for something like PTSD because I was also getting like nightmares that were linking up to Africa reporting days. In the end, I because I'd done this research, I was so sure that this time around I was going to do what I needed to help myself. That was my kind of promise to myself, whether it be like somehow get more sleep or get go and see a physio or whatever it was. And so I had some therapy, just a couple of sessions in total, and that allowed me to process what had happened. And it was a huge help because it just means that now I'm like, I don't get really emotional in a negative way when I talk about it. Like I can engage with the experience Mm. emotionally without feeling unsettled. I just can't even imagine how that must have felt because home birth as well, 
particularly if you had a relatively uncomplicated first delivery in a midwifery suite and whatever, the next logical step is, oh, second baby, they come very quickly. All the kind of generalizations about second babies. And you think that a home birth would be ideal. I've often thought that, oh, if I'd had an uncomplicated first vaginal delivery, I'd just, I'd just have a home birth second time around. Exactly. And it's just not straightforward no and And I'd been so fixated on like my own body doing the right thing during the birth obviously if you're at home you're that much further from Mm. operative delivery and so I was scared about that stuff but I hadn't thought to be scared about basically my baby not breathing I hadn't factored that Mm. in so obviously it's better postnatal like mental and physical health care I just must have been absolutely terrifying. And I'm so glad that you managed to access the help that you needed in the end. Yeah. I said I'd nearly finished the book. I did not reach that bit at all, <laughs> which is why I'm slightly speechless. But right I'm just again. so glad that baby Hugo's okay. What I would say is the only reason as well that it played out like that was because the midwives didn't come when they should. Like I'm not saying that I think home birth is more risky based on that experience because what should have happened is that as soon as I called them and said, listen, I'm going into labour, they'd have seen that the heart rate was maybe slightly dropping and not recovering in between contractions. And then they'd have said, okay, we're going to go to hospital and deliver it there. So it wouldn't have Mm. been quite so dramatic. Like I said, I'm just I'm very pleased that you have your baby safe because that is just the most important thing. But honestly, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you and it was such a pleasure to read the book. And tell us where to find you because um, Jess's Instagram, because obviously husband is photographer, the Instagram is literally amazing. The pictures are, are so beautiful and so dark and moody and I love it. I love the aesthetic. Oh, he'll love that you said that. He, yeah. He enjoys his moody skies. Yeah, so my Instagram is Jessica Jane Hatcher, and it is full of my husband's pictures. He's a Fillmore photo, and the book is called Afterbirth. I just can't wait to see where the book is going to go because I think it's going to be a huge success. Thank you so much, Letitia. It was really fun to speak to you. Well, you made it. We've reached the end. Enjoyed it? Drop me a note on Instagram or Twitter at New Leaf Podcast. Or better yet, do me a quick rating on iTunes. Have a lovely day. And if you're a parent, have an even better night. Bye, everybody.